Thank you, Dan and choir and instrumentalists for beautiful worship today. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. We continue in our sermon series, Making Kings from 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 4 and a few chapters beyond today, but we'll begin in chapter 4 in just a moment. Have you ever wondered why men's basketball shorts have gotten longer and longer and longer in a day when everything else is getting shorter and shorter and shorter? Do you know why that is? It's superstition. Michael Jordan wore his lucky blue North Carolina shorts under his Bulls uniform. In order to cover up the North Carolina shorts, he needed a longer pair of shorts made for him. And, well, one guy's superstition has changed basketball shorts for both men and women seemingly forever because he had to have the lucky blue shorts under the Bulls uniform. And then there's Serena's socks. If the first set goes well in tennis, Serena and her superstition wears the same pair of socks for the entirety of the tennis tournament. Maybe stinky feet is Serena's secret ingredient when it comes to overwhelming her competition. Well, then there's Jason Terry. Basketball as well. Nothing like knowing your enemy. Jason Terry actually sleeps in the game shorts of his opponent's team the night before the game. He sleeps in the game shorts of the opposing team the night before the game. Jason says he's got connections. He's been able to procure a pair of shorts from every opposing team in the NBA. He knows the guys in charge of the uniforms. And so the night before the big game, he grabs the opponent's pants as his pajamas and goes night-night knowing he'll win the next day. Well, whether it's extra long shorts or wearing stinky socks over multiple days, Whatever you think, whatever you suppose might give you the advantage over your opponent, it's, it's superstitions. But neither Jason Terry nor Michael Jordan initiated the idea of lucky charms. They go a long, long, way, way back. In fact, we'll see this morning from 1 Samuel that Israel had tried to reduce God down to a rabbit's foot down to a lucky pair of shorts. In the story in chapter 4, Israel is camped at Ebenezer while the Philistines are at Aphek. The Philistines are all lined out to the battle array. Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. And the Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about four thousand men on the battlefield. So they clash, they make war, and Israel loses with 4,000 soldiers defeated. Now, the people are confused in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today? The question is not, why have the Philistines defeated us? They, God was in control of everything. They never doubted the power of God, but they wondered why he had allowed them to be defeated. And so the problem, they say, was we didn't have God. If we'd only had God, we'd have been okay. Look over at the end of verse 3. 
Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that may come among us and deliver us from the power of the Philistines. Why did God allow us to lose today? We didn't have God with us. Hey, somebody said, God's back at Shiloh. He's in that box. He's in the Ark of the Covenant. Let's go get God, God in a box. Let's go back to war. And when we have our God in the box, our rabbit's foot, our lucky charm, we are sure to win the victory. Now, you remember the history of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies of the Tabernacle. God had given special instructions for its construction. It was to be two and a half. A cubit is 18 inches. Two and a half cubits long. One and a half cubits wide. One and a half cubits deep. It was to be overlaid with pure gold inside and out. The lid, the mercy seat, was made entirely of gold, pure gold. There were two cherubim on each end, the wings facing in. That was the holy spot. God would reside there on the top of the mercy seat. God said, I will meet you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony. I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment from the sons of Israel. Well, we didn't win because we didn't have our God in the box. Now, it's awfully convenient if you can put God in a box and carry him around, isn't it? They had failed to let the Ark of the Covenant represent the holy, holiness and the majesty and the power of God, but rather they had turned it into little more than a good luck charm to manipulate, control, and carry around. Hey, one of the Israelites said, we lost because we didn't have our box. If we'd have had our box, nobody beats us when we have our box. Let's go get the box. The priest's two sons, Eli, Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they brought the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh, from the place of worship. Israel, verse 5, is delighted to see the ark. It happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp that all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth itself resounded. They go and get the ark, the box. When the army sees, the army of God sees the box, they begin to shout, shout in such a way that the, the earth itself begins to shake. The Philistines say, hey, what's all that commotion about? We just whipped them. Why are they shouting as if they're victorious? What's this thunderous roar going on over there? Uh-oh, said one of the Philistines. They've gone to get the God, the God who lives in the box. Look at verse 7. God has come into the camp. Woe to us. Nothing like this has ever happened to us before. What are we going to do? We've heard already. What this God did to the Egyptians with all the plagues with which they were plagued. The Philistines get scared. The Israelite army begins to shout. There's an uproar. Be brave, the Philistine commander said. You'll be their slaves if you lose this one. So now we're going to win, right? We'll look at verse 10. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great, 
for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Now, wait a minute. When we didn't have God, we only lost four. We go and get God in the box, and now we lose 30,000 soldiers. This is a crisis for Israel. What are we going to do? In fact, as you read the text, you realize the narrator himself is not able to offer an explanation. If God is on your side, if God shows up in the box, you're supposed to win. He really offers no explanation. There's a theological crisis going on. No longer can you say we lost because the box wasn't there. The box was there. And we were doubly defeated. Now, it can only be understood along these lines that the defeat was the will of Yahweh himself. He is breathless as he runs. A man from the tribe of Benjamin, he runs all the way back to Shiloh. His clothes are rent. There's dust on his head. He can't be bringing good news. Old Eli, the priest now, is 98 years of age. He's out on the roadway waiting for the word. He had spent his life taking care of God in the box. And he didn't really like the idea of the box leaving anyway. And he's worried about the box, and they bring the word back. He's 98 years of age. Sir, I'm the one who's come from the battle line. He hears a commotion. And how did it go, my son? The old priest asked. Not good, sir. Israel has fled before the Philistines. There's been a great slaughter, and your two sons are dead. And then those awful words that he said. He said, the ark has been captured. Look into verse 17. And the ark of God has been taken. And it came about when he mentioned the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. Now, it was bad enough to hear that both of his boys had died, but that wasn't what killed him. It's when he heard the words, God has been captured. The ark of the covenant has been taken. Upon those words, he falls back, and he dies. The ark meant more to Eli than his own boys. Worse yet, the story continues, verse 19. One of Eli's boys who died, Phineas, his wife is expecting a child. When she gets the news that the ark of God has been taken, she goes into labor. Now she's found out her father-in-law has died, her husband has died, but worse of all for her as well, the ark has been captured. She goes into labor. The ladies try to comfort her. You've had a boy child. You have hope. I know your husband's dead, but you've had a boy child. And she said, well, name him Ichabod because the glory of God has departed from Israel. She would not be comforted. It is one of those texts of tension. I, I think I know what the story is about. It's that moment that we think we have God in our own hip pocket. God had become for them not powerful, not someone to whom they would be obedient, 
God had become for them little more than a lucky box, a lucky charm. They thought that God would overlook all of their disobedience, that they had a relationship with him, and they could control God and manipulate God, and they could use the power of the box, the power of God at war. They did not see their relationship with God as being one that was vital and loving and growing and yielding. But instead, they saw God as a God to be manipulated, a God to be controlled, a God to be limited for their own purposes. How about us? Do we ever think of God in those terms? The God that I'll put in a box or my hip pocket and carry around for my own purposes. Sometimes we're like that, aren't we? We don't want to yield ourselves to a Holy Spirit. We don't want really God to have control of our lives or make any changes in who we are or how we live our lives. We have our own designs and desires for our life, and we want to put God in a box bring him out when we need him and store him back away when we want to live life our own way. How could a gospel about a, a suffering servant become so perverted? A Jesus who said, because the world has mistreated me, it will mistreat you. Or in this world you have tribulation. Or be careful before you follow me, you'll have to take up your cross daily if you're going to follow me. But no, we have Americanized and Westernized the story. We have made the call to Christianity not a, a call to be a suffering servant with the Christ or a call to costly discipleship. We have seen the gospel or God, God in the box, as another way to health, wealth, and prosperity in our day. Just last month, the New York Times had a very intriguing article. It was written by Kate Baller. Kate Baller is only 35 years of age, but already she's an assistant professor of history of Christianity in North America at Duke University. She is the author of a book, Blessed, A History of the American Prosperity Gospel. Doing her research, Dr. Baller actually traveled with faith healers prosperity gospel proponents to learn more about the, the movement. She actually went to the Holy Land with Benny Hinn. She wanted to learn firsthand. She mingled and interviewed and asked questions about this prosperity gospel movement. She said, I ruined every family vacation we ever had because I always insisted on being dropped off at the showiest, biggest mega church in every town. If there was a river running through the sanctuary, I was there. If there was an eagle flying in the sanctuary freely, oh, man, I had to be at that one. If there was a big golden globe spinning around about the world missions, man, I would be there that Sunday. But the professor of prosperity gospel learned on a Thursday morning just a few months ago that she had stage four cancer. The stomach cramps she had been experiencing were birthed from a large tumor. 
I did what anyone would do, the good doctor said. I sank to my knees and I cried. I called my husband, said, I love you forever. Take care of our boy. And he walked me from my office at Duke University Religion Department over to the hospital to take on my new world, my new life. She said, my, my first thought was, how ironic is this? I've written the book entitled Blessed. She's a historian of the American prosperity gospel, not an adherent. She spent all of her academic effort studying the prosperity gospel that allowed no suffering, that allowed no sickness. It was the gospel of guarantees. It's the gospel of the God in the box. You take him with you, you'll win the war. She said, I watched as the emaciated man was pushed around the mega church and people declared the poor man was already healed. He was already healed. I spent my life, she says, studying those who denied suffering, sickness, and death. And now I know firsthand God is not the God of a lucky charm. The fundamental question of the text today is, what kind of relationship do you want with God? Is our relationship with God about our control over God? Do we want to manipulate His power for our own purposes? Or do we want to have a biblical relationship with God when we yield ourselves to Him, to His will and His way? Who's the master? And who's the servant? Ancient Israel had become the master of God, so they thought, and made God the lucky charm of the box. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only sucker in this sanctuary, but I've got an 11-year-old Airedale Terrier who trains me. Have you ever had that happen in your relationship with your dog? You realize all of a sudden, that dog is telling me what to do. I'm supposed to be teaching the dog tricks, but the dog is teaching me tricks. That ever happened to you? Now, she's a big dog, and if she wants a milk bone, she will literally take this really long nose and push you towards the pantry. And next thing you know, you're going toward the pantry. And I mean, do you want to fight posting up by an Airedale? No, you, you just give the Airedale a bone and you get it over with. And then if I ever take a snack into the, into the den, well, let's, let's see what it might look like. There it is, those <laughs> big eyes. Those are my blue jeans underneath her. Uh, there I am with 100-calorie popcorn, finally in my chair about 9 o'clock, got the Diet Coke, ready, ready to relax for a moment. She will come over and put her head right there and be just as calm as she can. She looks up those big brown eyes. And, and that's okay. I'm holding on pretty good. And then she starts quoting Scripture. And what can you do? <laughs> I know what she's saying. She says, the Bible says we're supposed to share, Dad. <laughs> and I'm, I, I'm holding on pretty good at that point. And then she says, and our Lord Jesus said, Dad, even the dogs get crumbs. Even the dogs get crumbs. And all of a sudden, my 100-calorie popcorn becomes... 50-calorie popcorn. I eat one, I throw one for Maggie. I eat one, I throw one for Maggie. It's not supposed to be that way. 
Why my own parents ended up with a dog that told them when they had to go, when they had to eat supper. She would tell them when they had to go to bed. And she would tell my parents when they had to get up. It's upside down. You're supposed to be the master and tell the dog what to do. Don't let that happen to you. It happened to me. Relationships get upside down, don't they? We don't tell God what to do. God, unlike me, God will not be controlled. God will remain the master. God is sovereign. You have a relationship with God in which you want him to be obedient to you? Or do you want to be obedient to him? We try our best slowly and surely to control God, to trim God, to put him in a box and have a relationship with him solely for our own benefit. Jesus' first followers didn't understand any more than ancient Israel what it meant to let God be God. The idea that if we can put God in the box and take him to the battle, we will win every single war is wrong. But rather, we are to recognize him as Messiah, to proclaim him as being right, whatever he decides, whenever he decides it. You see, sometimes we have the problem that we have a God of unmet expectations. You see the crisis in Israel. We took God and we got whipped worse. How can this possibly be? It was a theological crisis to the core for God's people. They had the expectation that if they carried God in the box, they would win. And they didn't. One gentleman tells a story about his taking his five-year-old son to get a, his first two-wheel bicycle, and he happened to take his Andrea, his three-year-old daughter, along, and Andrea kept wanting a bike, too, and he tried to explain, well, you're not ready. You're still learning on the tricycle, and right now, if you get a two-wheel bike, it'll, it'll cause you a lot more pain than it will pleasure. You just trust, Daddy. There'll be a day when, like your older brother, we'll come and we'll buy you a two-wheel bicycle, but today, we're getting him a bicycle, and no matter what he said, little Andrew would not be convinced. She was quiet for a while. He tried to explain, and then finally, in the middle of the store, in front of everybody, she shouted, well, then I want a new Daddy. We proclaim, well, then I want a new God. If you're not going to meet my expectations, I want a new God. That's where Israel was. They could no longer rely upon the God of the box. They could no longer be guaranteed that they could live disobediently. And have things always go their way. Chapter 5 is an interesting chapter. In chapter 5, the ark is captured. They take it to Ashdod where there's a temple there. Look at verse 2 of Dagon. Dagon is a Philistine god. They, they carry the ark of the covenant and put it in the temple with Dagon. Now, why would they do that? Well, one, to say he's, the ark is submitted 
Yahweh had to submit because Israel lost. Yahweh had to submit to Dagon. And then if there's any power left in this lucky charm, let's put it in our temple too. You see? They, they awake early the next morning and they get there to the temple of Dagon and Dagon has fallen over and bowed down to Yahweh, the Ark of the Covenant. Coincidence, right? So they, they prop Dagon back up, standing above the Ark of the Covenant. They wake up the next day. When they go back the next day, Dagon has bowed again to Yahweh and his hands have come off and his head is gone. He is mindless and powerless in the presence of Yahweh. They realize what's happening, and then the people of Ashdod start getting tumors. And they decide that's not very fun, and they decide, well, maybe Gath would enjoy the Ark of the Covenant. We have celebrated, we have celebrated all we can stand here in Ashdod. Maybe it's like nuclear waste. They, no community wants this captured God, this powerless captured God. And so they take him to Gath. And when they get to Gath, verse 8, they all get tumors in Gath. And they don't want it anymore. And they say, you know, we shouldn't be selfish celebrating all the time. We ought to let Ekron enjoy this God in the box. And so they, they take the God in the box to Ekron, and they all get tumors. And finally, they, they call up Israel and say, hey, you can have him back. You see, the Philistines realized what Israel did not. That is, Yahweh never was powerless. He was still powerful. It was Israel that had to change her heart. Look over at chapter 7. Chapter 7, the ark comes back. And Samuel speaks remember our boy we let off at the temple he speaks verse 3 and Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel saying if you return to the Lord with all your heart remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines God came home God was never powerless. It was Israel that was powerless because of her disobedience. It's not about having God captured in the box. It's about your heart, Samuel says. If you will return to God with all of your heart, if you'll quit worshiping the foreign gods, if you'll put aside the idols, it'll go well with you. And you will defeat the Philistines. It's odd how we misconstrue the gospel. It's a story about surrender. And we make it a story about gaining power. It's a story about selling all that we have and being generous. And we make it a story about building up wealth. It's a story about suffering and the change that suffering brings us, and we have made it a, the power of positive thinking. Do you remember when Solomon, on that day of dedication of the temple, they bring the ark, the box, into the temple, 
permanent house of God. Do you remember what Solomon says? But will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, the heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this house that I have built. Paraphrased. Lord, I realize that the highest heavens cannot contain your glory and your power. So why have I tried to make you fit in my own designs? Designs for my health, wealth, and prosperity. You see, the gospel is not a story about you placing your demands and designs and desires on God. The gospel is a story about God placing his demands, desires, and designs on us. He's a sovereign Lord, not a rabbit's foot. Let us pray. Oh, God, may your spirit indwell us and change us and make us like you. Oh, God, forgive us when we've had our own agendas. Forgive us when we've tried to manipulate you into a box made by our own hands and our own desires. God, may we let you be God. Amen.